Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Today I'm joined by Tony and Michaela Abatini. Tony is the founder of a group called Frozen Ropes, and he has over 30 years involved in private sector professional baseball development. Michaela, his daughter, played on the Italian national softball team, played D1 softball, and is now a scout for the Pittsburgh Pirates organization in the MLB. Today, the three of us are going to be discussing the player evaluation process. So what is a scout looking for when they evaluate a pitcher or a hitter or the like in baseball? So this is a great episode. I know you're going to love it today. And be sure to check out everything that Tony and Michaela are doing over at FrozenRopes.com. Enjoy the show. Tony, Michaela, welcome back to the podcast, Michaela. It's super exciting to work with both of you today. For people who aren't familiar with the two of you, would you mind kind of filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the amazing things that you do with frozen ropes and working with professional athletes? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let the young lady go first. <laughs> that. Fair enough. Yes. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate you having me back on. My name is Michaela Abatini. I uh, played softball growing up, played in high school, then went on to play Division One, and then internationally for Team Italy and professionally over in Europe. And now I work in baseball operations for the Pittsburgh Pirates, based out of Pittsburgh, working in the front office out of the beautiful PNC Park. Most of my job is focused within scouting, so player evaluation at the amateur level, which is high school and college players, and then also player development within our Pirates organization, on-field skills, performance science, and the mental game. So that's me. I'll pass it over to my dad, Tony. I'm Tony Abatini. I'm Michaela's dad. Uh, I'm the founder <laughs> of Frozen Ropes. Uh, Frozen Ropes is a baseball, softball player development entity that's been around for almost 30 years. We have locations in West Coast, Texas, uh, New York, Pennsylvania. Uh, my job is to make sure that uh, best information, best practice gets to all of our locations, both on technical skills, tactical skills. Um, we, we do get involved on the strength and conditioning piece of it. We understand how it's important for, for athletes to be healthy and to be fast. So my job is really to systematize the teaching so that whether you're three years old or 18 years old, going to a frozen ropes location around the country or some of the satellite camps that we have in Dubai uh, and in Italy, um, we're providing what we think is best practice information. Uh, that's the company. I, I spend most of my time now individually uh, working with college baseball and softball programs and major league teams and major league players in the area of what I call visual psychology. Uh, a term that I made up, actually. Um, people asked me where that came from. And I said, you know, in the days of just making shit up, I just said, yeah, if you take vision and mental and you put it together right then, you got visual psychology. So it's understanding that mental skills training, in my opinion, has to and should start with visual processing because the eyes are part of the brain. And, and most athletes live, train and play in the visual world. So I spend most of my time now educating coaches and trying to help players who are stuck both emotionally and sometimes visually. That's my world. I love that. And, you know, to your point, so much of what we do uh, working with athletes is mental or visual or whatever term you want to give it. There's, there's this obsession lately that everything is all about the physical side of things. And unfortunately the physical side of things does not tell the whole story. I've seen very physically gifted athletes who struggle with simple things for a mental block or a fear block or something along those lines. So there's certainly a large role to your point of the mental visual side or uh, your term visual psychology side to what we do on the day to day with athletes. Now, for you, Tony, and obviously for you, Michaela, as well, you know, Michaela, you've been in a position for a while now where you're basically evaluating some of the best of the best athletes in a sport like baseball on the daily basis. And, you know, you're ultimately looking to determine whether or not they're ready to make it to the professional level or the next level, or if they're not, you know, demonstrating the qualities and characteristics uh, that are needed to make it there. And, you know, Tony, for yourself, I mean, you've been in the game for 30 years and I've seen athletes from frozen ropes, go on to play D one college ball, go on to play professional ball, 
uh, whether that be in like the MLB or representing a national team, like a national softball team. I mean, the work you two do is very impressive. And you've seen so many incredible athletes over, you know, the past few decades. So just kind of start in general here, what kind of key qualities or characteristics do you see in those athletes that really make it to the next level, if we want to use that term, make it? Yeah, I think kind of to start off, you know, there's a lot of different slices that I like to call make up the whole pie. You have kind of your physical tools and traits that you're being evaluated on, those different components of hitting, defense, pitching, your athleticism, and then what we call in the baseball and scouting world, your makeup, kind of what we talked about, your your head and your heart qualities and even your eyes qualities that we kind of just mentioned with the whole visual psychology. So there's definitely a lot of components both on the physical side and then what makes up that player at their core as far as their character and kind of their mindset piece that there's a lot of different um, roles that come into play. To Michaela's point, you're, you're right. I mean, if, if, if you look at, you know, how people get evaluated and why some players make it to high levels, whether it's division one where Michaela played or, or whatnot, you need talent, you, you need physical skills, right? I mean, I, I'd like to one day win American Idol and I have the motivation to do that. The problem is I can't sing. So it, it really starts with a baseline of, do you have some physical skills? You really have to start with that. And, and certainly in, in baseball and softballs, do you have good bat to ball skills? Can can you throw? What does your arm look like? Things like that. I think that's kind of the baseline. But the the holy grail in, in player development, really, Dan, is, okay, what happens next? And, you know, people talk about speed of play. When the game gets faster, you know, will those movement patterns that look good in batting practice or with the physical therapist play out when you've got adrenaline and and dopamine levels getting kicked in and, and what happens to the athlete at that point, that's the unknown. And, and that's quite frankly, in, in Michaela's world, uh, people get fired, <laughs> you know, Hey, we thought this guy was really good and, and they get stuck in double a or, or they never get to the big leagues. And it probably has nothing to do with their physical skills. It's just that the speed of the game and, and their ability to process information a little bit faster, whether it's not swinging at a curveball in the dirt or not being able to, to, to uh, feel ground balls as, as exit velocity gets faster. Th those are all the, the unknowns to do that. And it's projection. It, it really is. There's no, there's no magic sauce to that. You know, scouts, as I've learned, they take their best guesstimate, the, the higher the pick, the, the more they need to go in and watch that athlete more times. And, and even at that point, it's a crapshoot. <laughs> um, if, if you look at scouting and, and how many players get drafted, most don't get there. I mean, if you think about it, baseball, the draft in and of itself is a very inexact science. And and I, I think the numbers, factoring out the first rounders, I mean, they're going to have five different opportunities to get there to an extent. But in all the other rounds, someone said, we think that person can get to the big leagues. And the majority of them don't. So is it that the scouts suck? Is it that player development isn't very good? Do they get hurt? There's so many in, intangibles there, but yeah, you, you need to show baseline physical skills and the rest of it, quite frankly, will be up to the club's ability to develop them and introduce them to mental skills training and visual psychology. It's going to be up to the next level of strength and conditioning uh, personnel to make sure they're getting bigger, faster, and stronger. But it, yeah, at the end of the day, it, it's still a, a coin toss. I think the big thing is, right, uh, does that athlete have resilience? You know, how are they going to deal with failure? I, I think those are the things that I know you and Michaela talked about previously. And you don't know. You, you don't know, you know, what goes on in, in the belly to an extent. When, when Are you dealing with adversity? Uh, the first time you get your butt kicked, are you going to resolve and, and run away? I think those are the things that we just don't know as 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 coaches and, and we can give them best practice, but it, it's still a risk. It's certainly at, at the highest level where where McCalla scouts. Yeah, definitely. And that's the thing to your point there, Tony, is there's never really like a guarantee. Like it would be amazing if we could just look at someone and say, you know, with 100 percent certainty, like, 
yes, this person demonstrates everything that we need them to to make it and they have all of the mental things in check and everything they need to to continue to grow and develop and become an even better player when they get to the next level. But kind of like you mentioned, sometimes it is a little bit of a coin toss. You know, sometimes there is that element of uncertainty and we can't 100 percent guarantee that just because you demonstrate the characteristics and the qualities to make it to the next level that it's even going to work out, you know, to your point, how many individuals make it into the double A, triple A level um, and then never break into the MLB or maybe they make it into the MLB and it doesn't go as well as it did at a double A or triple A level. Well, Dan, you, you, I mean, not to interrupt, but and Michaela can probably talk more about this. You look at pitchers in particular. Yep. Right. You talk about projecting injury with, with the high velocity that you're seeing in high school with the amount of Tommy John surgery that you're seeing with 14 year olds. So so now you're going to draft someone who's throwing 99 to 103 miles an hour. What exactly, what boxes have to be checked for every organization to say, is this a delivery that can sustain itself? Or are, are we looking at within 18 months, blowing it out and, and losing this particular person? Pitchers in particular, there's the risk factor. Michaela probably can talk a little bit more about, you know, some generalizations on what a good delivery looks like. But, you know, from a hitting standpoint, we tell coaches this all the time. Well, if you screw up the hitters, they're just not going to hit. You screw up the development of pitchers, you could lose an arm. <laughs> okay. The injury factor with pitchers is a lot more than screwing up the hitters at the college level and, and at the professional level. And, and yeah, th that's the unknown. I mean, do we know what the perfect biomechanical delivery looks like? We think we do, right? We, we have 300 frames per second of, of, of understanding uh, what it should be and, and these normative ranges and leverage points. And we have biomechanics and doctors looking at this thing, but there's such an unknown, particularly in pitching. Yeah, walk me through that if you can, Michaela, especially um, not just the throwing arm, but I've also heard some stuff in the past about the importance of the glove hand and how the non-throwing arm is actually positioned and uh, what you do with the non-throwing arm in that throwing motion. Yeah, I know you've definitely seen pretty much over the last decade how, in particular, Tommy John injuries have multiplied across the sport of baseball. You're seeing it from youth athletes and travel ball to the showcase circuits to, you know, kind of the major league level. It's something that, you know, we talk about when we're scouting and evaluating these amateur players. You're seeing it now throughout the college season that some of these guys are, are blowing out now. And some will take the kind of attitude that, okay, he's already had Tommy John surgery, so he's okay. We don't have to worry about it. Or, hey, he's, he had Tommy John surgery. Maybe he's going to come back, you know, throwing at higher velos and there's just so many unknowns every Tommy John surgery is going to be a little bit different as far as you know what exactly went wrong and how that player is going to recover and kind of what you mentioned Dan with mechanical flaws there's a lot of different mechanical flaws and kind of red flags that have been you know identified as a source of increased stress on the UCL when you're throwing whether it's flying open, uh, your elbow extension at foot plan and just improper sequencing that, you know, has to do with the throwing arm and the stress that's placed on the elbows and really any inefficiencies that are occurring along the kinetic chain. But yeah, it's, you're seeing it happen now and it's, it's something that you can't ignore and everyone is different. And it's, it's a major factor that we look at when we're evaluating players as far as arm action, arm speed, arm angle, arm slot. So all, all those different things you know, kind of play into a role. You're seeing guys that are hitting crazy velos, touching above 100 and saying, oh, is, is, is he gonna, when's he going to blow out? It's not a matter of if, it's sometimes a matter of when, um, when these conversations are going on. You know, I can't help but wonder, too, and you can certainly speak more to this than I can, Michaela, but baseball is becoming a year-round sport for many of the individuals, especially in the high school, uh, you know, round of things where, you know, you play for the school, but you also play travel ball throughout the summer. You can play indoors now, uh, and there's not necessarily a whole lot of time off. And, you know, we just had a conversation about this on the podcast with Eric uh, lately about load management. You know, how many times do you see 
you know, well, we've got the pitch count in place. And then next thing you know, that high school player who was pitching gets moved to third base. So sure, they hit their pitch count, but now they have the longest throw across the infield. And they've got even more wear and tear on their arm from just, you know, making long throws for the rest of the game. Um, so would you say that there's like an element to the evaluation process that looks at the overall load that an athlete is putting on? And how do you factor that in from an overall health and longevity standpoint of that player? Yeah, as we like to say it at Fresno, there's truly never an off season when it comes to baseball. You especially see it the amateur level especially with travel ball and all of these players trying to get recruited to go to college and then hopefully one day uh, make it to the professional level. But you're seeing at the repetitive nature of baseball, how often these guys are throwing, not just in game settings, but in training is causing physical adaptations throughout the never ending season of baseball that is diminishing their mobility and leading to additional stress on the arm. So things, like prioritizing your mobility, your fitness, making sure that your mechanics, everything is occurring to make you as efficient as possible. Um, as you mentioned before, monitoring your workload, knowing that, hey, I might be going to train today off the mound, but I'm not going to blow it 100% of my max effort. I can work on things and not be throwing up max velo for every pitch prioritizing your recovery, having a pre-throwing routine, having a post-throwing routine. There's a lot of factors that can go into ensuring an athlete's arm can stay healthy throughout this long season that I think we can periodize a little bit better than just going max effort 12 months out of the year. Hey, hey Dan, can I just can I just add one piece to what Michaela just shared? Of course. Because I just actually read it the other day. Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery publication found that youth baseball pitchers who played in more than eight months of organized baseball per year had a significantly higher risk of elbow and shoulder injuries compared to those who played in fewer months of organized baseball. Again, the results of the study showed that youth baseball pitchers who played in more than eight months of organized baseball had a significantly higher risk of, of injury. Specifically, the risk of elbow injury increased 30% for every additional month of organized baseball, while the risk of shoulder injuries increased by 22%. That's the problem at the amateur level, right? Every every travel coach and, and well-intended lunatic mom and dad think that their player has to pitch all the time, okay? That, that more is better. What, what we try to explain to them is that there needs to be a shutdown there's a time and a place to play. No one's getting drafted out of uh, a 10 or 11 U team, right? And and playing 12 months out of the year. And, and Mikel is a perfect example of put the glove down and, and go hit your studies or go run track. There, there's something about playing a different sport and understanding the whole concept of periodization that depending upon the time of the year should dictate what's going on. But if you're pitching, which is in, in a in and of itself, an inherently dangerous activity. And you're doing that as the study talks about more than eight months out of the year, you, you're, you're putting that 15, 16, 17 year old arm in, in, in danger. And, and we've seen it over and over again, Dan, that the little league star pitchers, you never hear about them when they're in high school. It's no. like, man, that guy had a great arm when he was 12. Oh yeah. You know what? He's uh, working at seven 11 now and he can't even throw anymore. Cause he he's got shoulder problems at a certain point. There's something to be said about a fresh arm and, and not doing a lot of pitching until you're a little bit older. So the stress that, that pitching does, you're strong enough now to be able to withstand uh, the elbow shoulder action that happens there all the time. So yeah, um, it, it's, it's a big problem. Uh, both in the evaluation stage and us trying to suggest to parents uh, they don't need to be throwing eight months out of the year. Yeah. And, you know, the one thing I want to bring up too is this is all under the assumption that the pitching athlete is throwing overhand or three quarter style. I've seen some uh, individuals, 12, 13, 14 years old, that are throwing sidearm and submarine. Now you don't see that as often in the MLB anymore, but I've just I've never once thought to myself, you know what? It's probably good for a twelve-year-old to start throwing so, sidearm at like age twelve. Um, so it's not just necessarily like 
the repetitive stress and repetitive volume, but also I would say the, as you mentioned before, the mechanics of the throwing and the style that someone throws with. Um, well, I'll, I'll just say this and I'll, I'll, I'll put it back to Mikel at the higher level. You can have a 12 year old pitcher in overtime after 50 throws. So it's many times it's not so much the load or the frequency, it's how they're throwing. And, and, and pitching is all about when, when the stride foot lands where is the elbow shoulder in space and time? Is it ready to fire? As we call it, are you in that inside 90? Do you have good scapula loading, right? We want the shoulders to take the brunt of the throwing. You mentioned before about the front side. Tom House for years talked about opposite and equal, how both arms have to be symmetrical in, in, in throwing. So yeah, to your point, Dan, it, it's sometimes not so much how much you've thrown, but but how you're throwing and and the whole timing of when foot plant lands, where where are you ready to throw? M most pitchers that we see, they're typically a tick late, right? That their arm is not in a firing cocking position when the foot lands. Well, we know that every pitcher from the big leagues to ten year olds, when that foot lands, there's a message that goes to the brain that says, "I got to throw this thing." So no matter where the arm is on that roller coaster on the backswing, you got to throw it. And, and that's where you'll start getting elbow and shoulder impingement. So the timing of the delivery, in addition to the volume, is where we're seeing players getting hurt. As you mentioned, we'll throw it back to Michaela here because I'd love to know, like, how do you even pick up on those very minute timing differences? Because there's a lot of attention to detail that needs to go into uh, consideration when you're evaluating such a fast, explosive mov movement like a pitching throw. Yeah, I mean, we're fortunate enough to have a lot of access to – the explosion of technology that is in our game now with high-speed video, we can we can break down a pitcher with the the frames per second. You can see every single part of the delivery to look at these certain checkpoints that are kind of standardized. We kind of talked about before. Where is the elbow at? Where is the arm position at foot plan? Is he late? Um, different arm angles. Uh, what are the different grips? and actions on certain pitches so the technology definitely helps in being able to evaluate the mechanic side and look at some of these checkpoints for good health and then also some of these red flags that we're now seeing for um, some of these injuries that are exploding but it is a little bit of a double-edged sword you know this year-round throwing and you know it's kind of a velocity at any cost attitude that's become the norm but it it, it is also because all of these players are trying to be evaluated for, for the draft and they want to play at these next level. And, you know, as a scout, we look at, you know, arm strength. That's something that our eyes get really big when we, you know, see um, these guys that are lighting up the radar gun. So, you know, this mentality, you know, throw harder so you can scale, you know, the draft and the hype board, the perfect game leaderboards. It, it, it is a little tough to, you know, it makes sense why these young athletes are feeling the pressure to throw hard, throw all year round at any cost, and it's coming at the cost of their own health. You, you mentioned the term throw harder a few times, and, you know, the, the term, like, just the explosion of velocity-based pitching has really uh, blown up lately. Like, you turn on the MLB TV, and pretty much everyone's throwing 97, 98, 9900 plus anymore. Uh, whereas, you know, I like to say that I grew up in the golden era because I'm a Yankees fan and those 06, 07, 08, 09 years for the Yankees, they were beautiful. But you look at our team, Mariano Rivera had a great backdoor cutter. Mike Messina had a great knuckle curveball. And anymore, you at least from what I've seen or watched uh, baseball, you don't see as much of the breaking ball type pitchers. You see a lot of guys throwing hard and heavy. Um, and I would imagine that as you were mentioning, you know, that's kind of the next big thing in player development is everyone wants to throw hard because that's what you need to make it in the MLB. And, um, or at least that's what they feel they need. Um, and they kind of miss the importance of control or the importance of having like multiple pitches. Um, you know, it's been a while since I've stepped in a batter's box, but I found it's a lot easier to hit a ball when you know exactly what's coming your way, as opposed to, you know, which one of four or five pitches is coming my way especially when one breaks that way, one breaks that way, and one breaks this way. Um, and, you know, Michaela, from your standpoint with softball, I'd imagine the same thing would be true in softball as well, drawing some parallels, right? Like, 
you know, if you throw one or two pitches, you have a lot less uh, tools in your bag to choose from. Uh, whereas if you can throw four or five and throw them well and hit your marks with them, like, you know, batters are just going to be, you know, crapping themselves because they don't know what's coming their way. I, I'll take that a step further with the evaluation side. How do you go about rating and evaluating players' pitches, right? So, you know, say you've got a baseball player, throws a fastball, curveball, changeup. How do you go about looking at them and assessing, like, which pitches are good, which are not good, what makes a curveball a good curveball, what makes a changeup good, that sort of thing? Yeah, so just kind of to go off, um, you know, talking about fastball velocity, it's it's definitely only one part of the puzzle. It's, you know, if you if you throw hard, great that checks one box, but there's more to a fastball than its velocity. You have to take in, you know, the movement is how does your fastball play? You know, you have some guys where they throw really hard, but their fastball plays down because there's no movement to it or they can't control it or they can't command it. Right. Control has to do with, okay, I can throw this pitch for a strike, but you see at the higher levels, guys can not only throw a, a strike in the zone, but they can command it to all four quadrants of the zone. So, hey, does this guy have control? Can he throw strikes? But then also, does he have command? Can he dot it exactly where he wants to in a specific part of the zone? So that control command has to do with all the pitches in your repertoire, whether it's a fastball, a slider, a curveball, a changeup, all of those things. And then we talk about not just control and command, but the movement of your pitch. What is the life on your pitch? What does it look like if I'm a hitter in the batter's box? Now, is that ball cutting? Is it running in on my hands? Is there explosive ride up in the zone that it kind of, like in softball, we call it a rise ball. In baseball, you kind of have that ride up. It looks like it's rising to the top of the zone from, you know, the hitter's point of view. So you have the velocity, you have the movement, the command, the control, and then what also kind of what we were talking about with deliveries before, you know, we look at pitchers that have deception or, you know, are they hiding the ball well in their delivery? Or if I'm in the batter's box, can I, can I see their whole arm action from my angle with my eyes? Now is the ball jumping on the hitter or do I feel like I have a lot of time to react? We talk about it at frozen earth too. Does this pitcher tunnel while well, I'll let um, my dad kind of talk about what tunneling means as far as, Hey, I have a fastball, but my fastball tunnels, just like my changeup does it, it looks the same. So that could be something that um, as far as your VO, the movement and the deception, all of those things play into how pitchers are evaluated now. So definitely it's, it's not just VLO that um, we look for when we're scouting players. That was a masterful a discussion there. I mean, that was that was a, that was a professional person uh, talking about that. You mentioned Mariana Rivera. I, I, I um, Mari Mariana Rivera and I go back a long way. He actually is the poster boy for our pitching model. If you go to FrozenRopes.com, you will see Mariana Rivera not in Yankee pinstripes, but in a Frozen Ropes uniform. When when I met him in 2000, 2000 he was a mop up guy who was just getting ready to start in the big leagues. We developed a friendship and, and he actually created with me a video called Combi for the Storm, right? If you looked at his delivery and if you're a 2006, seven Yankee fan, his delivery was magical, right? He, he would lull hitters into sleep with this very under control tempo and cadence. And then all of a sudden, bang, it would come out. And, and you're right, he made not only a living, but you're talking about probably the greatest reliever in our time with two pitches, right? He, he would throw 94, 95, but then just simply by the slight manipulation of his index finger, throw the magical cutter, right? And, and he was able to just beat up the lefties and run balls away from the righties. And to Michaela's point, the, the first 10 to 15 feet of ball flight on both those pitches from the hitter's eyes looked looked exactly the same. There wasn't, quote, picking it up early out of Moe's hand. Uh, hitters thought and believed that it was a fastball, and at the last 15 feet, right, that, that ball would run in on their hands if they were a left-hander because of that. So, yeah, velocity is great. Velocity gets you invited to the party. 
as I tell my scouting friends, they all fall in love with the big velocity and okay, great. Now major league hitters at some point, they, they, they can see and hit 120 at some point. If to Michaela's point, there's no movement on it, or there's no glove deception of it, or they're showing arm slots a little bit too early. The ones that sustain themselves for an extended period of time, Dan, uh, a Max Scherzer, a Justin Verlander, you know, some of the horses, a Garrett Cole, um, they've got the secondary pitches or or the life on their fastball is so late. That's where they're missing bats. Yeah. And I think, but but yeah, to get invited to the party, to get drafted. Yeah. If you're throwing 97 to hundred and you're clueless, uh, you know what? An organization is going to say, we'll fix that guy. We'll, we'll, we'll get him. We'll get, we'll, we'll get all of the different technology that we have now and, and, and change finger pressure and, and get a, a different uh, a spin rate or a, a change the axis of his spin. Um, but you need arm strength. I, I mean, if you really think about it, you can develop the other pitches, but um, the, the need to have arm strength and to have arm action that the biomechanical and the orthopedics say, hey, that's relatively clean. We, we know what a clean arm looks like uh, in, in the way of elbow speed and shoulder abduction and, and the timing piece of it and internal rotation and the layback of the forearm. We get all that. Every organization has their biomech geeks looking at that stuff all the time. Okay, but can we teach that person or do they have the beginning, as Michaela pointed out, do they have the beginning of command and control of, of different pitches out there? Uh, but yeah, Mo was the best that um, he didn't hitters didn't know what was being thrown because his ability to tunnel, that's the big term that pitching coaches use all the time. They want every single pitch to be coming out of the same tunnel, right? Because hitters have to make a decision, as we know. I mean, hitters are guessing. Hitting is all about estimating time to collision. They don't see the ball hit the bat. They have to make a decision to swing when the ball is pretty much halfway down the runway, which is a space between the pitcher's mound and home plate. So the more that ball looks like x and it becomes y at the end that's why mo is the best i love your points that you just brought up tony uh tony and michaela that is uh really in depth and i love that the like just overall focus and intention uh behind the evaluation of the uh pitchers and controlling the controllables but also recognizing you know what can be addressed with time and what can be developed with time uh, because as you mentioned, you know, if someone's already destroyed their arm, then there's probably a little bit of a ceiling on how good they're going to become. Now, how about for the hitters? Like if you're looking at someone uh, standing in the batter's box, does the stance that that person develops matter? Or, you know, how many times that they swing the bat back and forth before the swing? Does that matter? Or walk me through kind of the evaluation of the baseball hitting athlete or softball hitting athlete for that matter as far as the stance, the swing itself, and the overall contact? Yeah, so I can, I can start off with this as far as the hitting. Um, as far as stance, I wouldn't say stance is important. It's more, it's not how you start. It's more about does this hitter, whether it's baseball or softball, do they consistently get into good positions to hit as far as, you know, they're ready, they're loading positions. So it's not where you start, it's how you get ready. There's a lot of different stances that you're going to see. Some are open, some have, you know, big leg kicks, whatever, but the better players are consistently getting into, they're creating and getting into these good loading positions so that they can get their barrel to the baseball. Um, other things that we look at as far as, you know, the swing, you're going to have hitters that are different types of hitters. You're going to have, you know, hitters that have, what we call impact. They can really hit the, the baseball hard. They're going to have major home run power. You have other guys that are, you know, you're more, your bat to ball, line drive, get on base. So kind of profiling what hitter that you're evaluating is definitely important. You're not going to always have, you know, the same types of hitters. Um, you know, the one big thing, you know, impact and being able to hit home runs is you know a big thing in our game, but a lot of times with these hitters, you're going to, you know, you're going to have to be willing to live with the strikeouts a little bit. So kind of drilling down on the swing and miss. Another thing that is looked at is, you know, our chase chase zones where 
you're if you're evaluating a hitter, where are they constantly chasing? You know, are they chasing up, out, in, out? So chase, impact, profiling the type of hitter, whether you know you have a power hitter or more your bat to ball type of guy. And then another thing that I personally like to look at is does a player have a routine? Do they have an approach? What does that look like when they're, you know, on deck or as they step out of the box? What does that look like? How consistent are they? Are they breathing? Are they, you know, looking at their barrel and what we call at present ropes? Are they a little, they having a, a BLT, some barrel love talk, you know, having those feel good self-talk and affirmations, you know, when you get to the next level, these routines and your approach at the plate are so important because as we know, at you know, the the highest level, you're failing seven out of ten times. So those routines and the approaches that you build when they matter come game time are are crucial. So your your impact, your your barrel adjustability, um, and your routines, your approach and your chase zones as a hitter are all kind of some of the important components that I like to look at. Do you mean to tell me that being a hitter at the MLB level could be like stressful or something and having a good routine to keep yourself calm in the moment is important? That, that yeah. my mind. Who would have yeah, thought? Only, yeah, <laughs> only a little bit, Dan. <laughs> and, you know, that just takes us back to, you know, where we were talking um, before we even hit the record button here um, about the mental side of the game as well is, you know, if you're in that moment and you get a little bit of like, I don't know what the right term is, but just kind of jazzed up to the point where you can't focus on what's happening and be present in the moment. Like you could very easily strike out seeing pitches that, you know, you would normally hit fine. Whereas if you can stay calm, cool, collected, composed, whatever word you like to use um, in that moment, you're probably more likely to be successful uh, over the person that is just so ramped up and can't even, you know, keep their cool in a you know big moment like that and i'd imagine from your standpoint as a scout the guy who keeps his composure in a very clutch moment uh is one that's much more appealing to make it to the next level than someone who you know is just shaking uncontrollably the whole time and never gets the bat off their shoulder yeah absolutely especially in baseball evaluating how players handle failure and the better players see failure as feedback and they spend less time as my dad likes to call it wallowing in the fog you can either wtf wallow in the fog as a player and oh woe with me i'm playing the victim or hey i can wtf i can work to fix so the better players better baseball players have this higher level of resilience that you need especially as a hitter or in baseball in general in this you know in this game of failure so the better players spend more time being an active participant in their own rescue. Whereas, Hey, I'm going to be down for a really long time and be a bad teammate and have this bad body language. That's evident to everyone that's out of the field. Yeah, definitely. Now, in addition to the mechanical side of things, I'd imagine at some point you look at numbers and statistics of, you know, how a player is doing. Uh, so how important would you say the statistical side of the game is to, you know, your scouting evaluation process, Michaela. And, you know, on that too, are there any stats that, you know, carry a little bit more weight than others or are they all pretty uh, equally uh, yoked, I'll say? Yeah. So as far as performance metrics, you know, I think we kind of touched on it before that they're just a slice of the whole pie. You know, we take our scouting, our looks at the yard into account, performance metrics are taken into account what level that you're playing at, at the amateur level. Obviously, we're going to evaluate the college level a little bit differently than our high school or JUCO levels based on, you know, the, the strength of schedule and performance and players that they're facing. But some of the stats, you know, that are looked at and that do matter, they're going to be a little bit different, obviously, for hitters and pitchers. But I'll just touch on two, two that I think are pretty important are, your ISO, your isolated power, you know, we're playing a game where, you know, are you able to be productive? Are you able to hit for extra base hits? So ISO is a big one. And then kind of a twofold one, kind of, I guess it would be three, your strikeout rate and your walk rate. We talked about it before with, you know, recognition and chase, swing and miss. So those are 
probably three that I think are important. Obviously, everyone, when you think of stats, you think of batting average, but that doesn't necessarily tell everything that you need to know about a hitter. So are they able to hit for power? Are they going to be productive in addition to just being able to, you know, hit singles? Can they drive the ball out of the park? Can they hit those extra base hits with ISO that you're looking at? And then are, how often are they striking out and how often are they walking, I think? you know, tells a lot about a hitter. And then on the pitching side, it's, it's kind of the flip. Like what's their, what's their walkout rate? What's their strike rate? So the strikeout rate. So um, I think those are some of, some of the, there's, there's a handful, but those are a good starting point as far as, Hey, if I were to drill down on some of the metrics that I might possibly be evaluated on, those are some big ones. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's interesting to bring up, too, because how often do you see something like ERA or batting average alone, uh, you know, be the end of the conversation? Like, oh, this guy's got a 1.7 ERA, so he's a great pitcher. Or, you know, this guy has a 4.0 ERA, so he's a terrible pitcher. Or, you know, you look at the batting average, and I've seen, you know, some guys in college hitting 400 plus, and I've seen others hitting like, you know, low 200s. And it's interesting to kind of hear about some of the more advanced statistics, I'll call it, that go into it and not just a matter of, you know, how often you get on base or how many runs you give up, but there's a little bit more uh, pieces to the puzzle, I would say, than just those things alone from what you're telling me. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's more to stats than just batting average that is going to help us project and be confident in determining your future major league value. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I'm going to disagree. (laughs) <laughs> um, from my end um i'm not going to disagree um i think at the college i mean if you look at batting average right yep. you have a bat you have somebody that has a high batting average first of all in high school and college the umpires suck okay <laughs> okay i i don't know if i can use that word on your podcast but use whatever um, word you want I, i've seen some really good college and high school hitters get quote punched out right on balls that are eight to nine inches off the black that that their strike zone awareness is better than the umpire to an extent batting average is certainly an indication of bat to ball skills right you're not going to have a high batting average if you don't put a ball in play i think we could all agree on that and and yes there are some what i call those little duck farts that just simply go over second base as compared to a frozen rope right all the scouts talk about putting damage barrel to ball skills, hitting the ball hard. I mean, they they basically have stolen my line that we've been using for 30 years. Yeah, that guy's hitting frozen ropes. A frozen ropes is high exit velocity at a contact point where the ball is jumping off the bat to an extent. But, but I think batting average um, in high school and college to an extent does tell the story that They've got good bat to ball skills. Their ability to estimate time to collision, and that's what hitting is all about, is pretty good. So someone hitting 400 from a visual standpoint, from understanding the strike zone, that, that to me is a plus. And I, I think sometimes when you start looking at 18, 19, or 20-year-olds, well, they're not hitting the ball really far. Well, guess what? When they're 27 years old and they put on 25 or 30 pounds <laughs> and they've gotten stronger, maybe that comes later, but, you know, can you teach at an early age, good bat to ball skills? And there are a lot of organizations. I, I look at the Tampa Bay Rays and the Cleveland guardians that are looking at, you know what, can, can this guy put balls in play at a, at a young age, knowing that as they get stronger and, and more refined, the other stuff will eventually play out. But you're, you're seeing guys in high school and college, to McAllis points that, yeah, they're hitting balls over buildings with those aluminum bats. <laughs> but guess what? In five years from now, when the pitching gets better and they have to realize that less is more and they're going to have to learn how to control their body a, a lot more because of the pitching velocity, are they going to be able to hit? And I think some organizations, in my opinion, are going down a rat hole in the way of, of looking for what really – when you look at at the major league level, when when hitters really mature, Dan, it's about 27, 28. There are some freaks that come in, but that's usually the time in which you've developed enough skills and experience that, okay, what you see is what you get at that age. So to not have that high damage, high exit velocity at an early age, but their batting average is high and their bat to ball skills are good. I'm okay with that. Yeah, that makes sense. I 
I haven't thought about it like that before, Tony. That's a great take. Uh, but you know what? What do I know? I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't run an organization and, and, and maybe I'm a little subjective at times with players that just have good bat to ball skills and they're not hitting balls over buildings yet. As, as, as we talk about a frozen ropes, the most powerful word in the human language, I'm not the best hitter on the team yet. I can't hit a curveball yet. I can't bench press yet. Yet is the eternal word of optimism, you know, as compared to I can't do this. And I think sometimes we as evaluators, both at the amateur level and where Mikhail is, we get kind of caught up with, well, right now. And yeah, it is about projecting. We, we, that Michaela has to project the pirates and every other organization are, are projecting what this player will, will look like four to five years from now, which is about the average time in which most players evolve out of the minor leagues. But I think sometimes, do, you know, do they have good visual skills? And it really gets back to a topic that we can talk about at another time, Dan. But if, if they're not processing good information, if they're bat to ball skills, which is a function of, they're seeing it longer, sooner, and clearer, isn't very good. Well, maybe you can't teach that, but you, yeah, you can teach somebody to put on 35 pounds and be stronger in the weight room and they'll hit the ball further, but they're going to be missing a lot more because their visual processing skills wasn't very good from the beginning, especially with the college and high school pitching that they didn't really need to do it. And I think that's where organizations sometimes are getting burned. Yeah, no, but I they're hoping and praying that, yeah, right, this guy is, is a specimen. He's got a great swing, but he can't hit. And, and we have a generation of players in college, high school, and certainly in the minor leagues that have great swings. That, that scouts have said, yes, does everything great. Uh, but they just can't hit, okay? They, they, can't, they can't control their stress. They have what I call white line fever. Their swing looks good, but once the game starts, adrenaline spikes, Right. They haven't learned to, to, to self-regulate and to have good coping and anti-anxiety skills that they need to hit. And now all of a sudden that great swing doesn't play out to be an asset to a major league team. Right. Right. No, I completely understand your point there, Tony. And I really like where you went with that. And, uh, you know, to your point, physical things can develop, but you need to have some level of baseline first. Um, and, you know, we can certainly go down that rabbit hole on a separate podcast. And, you know, really today, even though we've talked for almost an hour, we've really only scratched the surface on what goes into evaluating a player. There's so many different things and characteristics that I know that you are all analyzing. Um, so to kind of wrap this up here, Michaela, Tony, do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything else you want to share that we might have missed real quick? on the, you know, conversation of player development and player evaluation uh, as it relates to baseball. I think, Dan, at, again, I, I can speak it even at the amateur level. We're, we're so we're so quick to judge people. We're so we're so quick to judge athletes and whatnot. He can't do this. He can't do that. And maybe I'm the eternal optimist. Our, our job in, in, in private player development, we don't get the draft every year. We don't get to discard mistakes from the year before in the draft. We've got to fix the stuff. And even at the college level where you bring a kid in as a freshman, yeah, the portal makes it easy to get rid of some of them at this point. But it's, okay, what can we do to, to improve on them and, and not label them so quickly? And I know at the higher level, they, they have to label quickly each year for the draft. But I, I just wish that coaches would would understand that it's up to them to, to make players better, right? And, and not, not be a scout first and say, they can't do this, they can't do that. And, and you're giving a, a really present value to them. But what can we do as an industry with a 12-year-old or a 17-year-old, right? So that the next time they're, quote, evaluated, they've gotten better. And I think that that's why, to me, player development is so much more exciting than the world that Michaela lives in right now. It, you know, no, yes, sucks. We don't want that person. I mean, anybody can do that, Dan, right? Okay, the, the real people, the real teachers, the master teachers are the ones that say, all right, you know what? Bat speed isn't very good yet. Doesn't run very well yet. 
their acceleration deceleration rates, you know, to learn how to stop the kinetic chain, as we know, which is your world, to make the bat go faster, a little sloppy. We can get the strength coaches involved. We can upgrade the hitting coach with better cues. We can make that player better. I, I think that's where we we need to be better at knowing that an, an evaluation is just simply a snapshot of what somebody is looking at right there, right now, knowing that there's so much more in every athlete. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree as far as how important the development part is. And I think that as I've kind of learned um, being in scouting for these past few months that, you know, a lot of evaluators tend to get caught caught up in what we call the eye test as far as, you know, looking at players that have major upsides, you know, to their body and we're projecting on frames that we think are going to get bigger, faster and stronger. But at the end of the day, it's way more important to focus on tools and traits of a player. You know, what is their value? What do we think that they do well? What do we think that they're going to get better at? What can we develop? You know, what are, what are we seeing from, their tools and their traits, not just, Hey, we go to the field and we fall in love with a big league type body. No, we're, we're evaluating and projecting on tools and traits. And are we, as an organization, do we have confidence that we can develop certain parts of a player's skill set to get them to where they need to be in a few years to contribute to our major league club? So it's all about the tools and the traits. It's not always, hey, we're, I mean, we're drafting players of all shapes and sizes. So any any players that are watching and are, you know, wondering, hey, does my height really matter if I want to go play at the next level one day? Um, just think about the tools and the traits. And it's more about what you do well and how we can both evaluate. And it's all about the development at the next level as well. Yeah, I love that. That's such a great point from both of you there. Uh, we'll be sure to link to Frozen Robes and we'll link to Michaela's fitness website and Instagram pages as well in the description below so you can check out everything that they have to offer. Uh, Tony, Michaela, I really appreciate both of your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.